Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination. So pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't get distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There were many times in Afghanistan when I contemplated life and death. In fact, as my combat deployment wore on, I thought about it more and more, especially in those quiet moments, just back from a mission cycle in my hooch, by myself alone with my thoughts. I survived today. Will I survive tomorrow? If you focus on that question too much, will I survive tomorrow? It will drive you crazy. I've seen men become so obsessed with it that it handicaps your ability to not just operate effectively in the field, but everything. It colors how you think. Pervasive anxiety and fear take over. It's it's utterly paralyzing. So many of us learn to stop asking it altogether. In fact, many of us had to convince ourselves that we were dead already. That it was only a matter of time and a question of how it would happen. When this reality set in, we functioned better in combat. Fear didn't color our decisions. There was no hesitation. The only thing that mattered was the man to your left and right and doing everything you could to make it back to the base home alive and win the day. About six months into my tour... I started thinking a lot about legacy. What would happen if I die? How would my family and friends react? They'd be sad for a time, sure, but after a while, would they forget about me? Would they miss me? If I was killed in action, I had no kids to carry on without me to help keep my memory alive. Death seemed so final. And... I will admit that that prospect scared the hell out of me. Then I started thinking about how many thousands of Americans had these same exact thoughts as me. Those who came before me, who served on hundreds of battlefields all over the world in defense of freedom. Those men and women who were forever changed by their experience of war, who then had to somehow come home 
and survive and make something of themselves or those Americans who never made it home. God rest their souls. There were so many times I tried to process the enormity of this both in Afghanistan and after I came home. I have to say I still think about it. The legacy of those who came before me and in my generation, the sacrifices those men and women made on the altar of freedom for us. And the idea that we truly stand on the shoulders of giants and we should remember them and that great sacrifice. We should do everything we can to pass on their legacy to the next generation, as well as to ensure that their memory lives on forever. And my next guest is someone who understands this very, very well, because this legacy is in her blood. Her grandfather was a pilot in World War II. Her father was in the 82nd Airborne Infantry and as a pilot. Her mother is a pilot. She's one of three sisters, all of whom served and are pilots. Her name is Amber Smith. Amber is a Kiowa warrior helicopter pilot who served in Iraq and Afghanistan at the height of the wars and is the best-selling author of the book Danger Close. More recently, she served in the Pentagon as Undersecretary of Defense for Public Outreach. She is a warrior through and through and one hell of an American. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Amber Smith, welcome to Battleground. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be on with you again. Yeah, this is crazy. Uh, we were just talking about um, prior to going uh, to, to recording about how we've known each other for 10 years. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy that it's been lo- that long. That's what I was saying. Like, again, like, I feel like we've spoke together. We've done media together. We've done like all sorts of different advocacy work together. And so to yeah, be on your podcast now, which I'm so excited that you have launched. It's just it's awesome to be on with you. Yeah, this is kind of crazy. We all have uh, have had sort of an insane journey over the last ten years to get to this point. And I was I was thinking about you in prep for for this interview because I I do know you have no, as we talked about I've known you for ten years. Um, and you're a pretty incredible person. You know, you're 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 competitive. You're driven. You were a gymnast, and then you were a cheerleader. And then you made the transition to attack helicopter pilot for the military and then a best-selling author. But you have this dog, this bulldog named Kiowa, who every picture that he, that you take of this dog looks like it can barely breathe on its own. So it sort of turns the whole narrative of people buy dogs, uh, people buy dogs like they are on their head. <laughs> Well, I think there's some truth to the she can barely breathe part of it. And if you hear some snoring, that's probably because she's laying down right next to me. But uh, she's awesome. She's a bulldog. She's the like laziest breed out there. So there's um, I want to say that there's not much work. But for any bulldog owner, you will know that like bulldogs are very high maintenance, especially for how lazy they are. But yeah, she got the name Kiowa, obviously, because I used to fly Kiowas in the army. And uh, I had to keep the legacy going because uh, I got her the same year that the army decommissioned the Kiowa. So 
so I want to talk about legacies here in, in a second, but I, uh, how do you as a competitive driven person get a dog that's so lazy? <laughs> so I lived in Washington, D.C. when I first got the dog and I was like, I need, you know, I was actually working at the Pentagon when I got her and I was like, I need a dog that is going to be okay with, you know, because when you work in the Pentagon, you work very long hours. And I was like, I need a dog that is going to be okay with getting lots of sleep and bulldog fits exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> well, Kiowa She's is, awesome uh, though. Bulldogs are so much work, but they're they're such like loyal, loving, stubborn dogs. Well, you you talked about legacy and I it, what I found remarkable because I read you got this book out. It's called Danger Close and and um I read that book a long time ago. And one of the things that struck me very early on in reading that book is that you come from a family of of pilots. I think it's remarkable. So Correct me if I'm wrong. You had a grandfather that flew in World War II, right? I do. My my uh, grandfather, he flew in the Army Air Corps in World War II. He flew the aerial routes between uh, Northern Africa and Europe. And he also flew some super early on helicopter prototypes. Um, after the war, he went on to fly for the airlines. But that's really where the, the aviation bug began in my family so uh yeah he kind of he kind of started it all so so you had a grandfather who is a pilot your mom is also a pilot right your dad both is of also my parents. A, yeah, my both dad of your parents. was a pilot for pan am my mom she was a pilot she was a civilian pilot um women were still very rare back in the 60s when she was flying 60s and then into 70s and uh, she got all of her ratings up to CFII, Certified um, Flight Instructor for Instruments, and she loved it as well. She, it was like a hobby of hers that she would do whenever she could save up the money to afford the flight hours because aviation is a very expensive hobby. And uh, then, I mean, it kind of comes as no surprise that they raised three daughters who wanted to become pilots ourselves. We grew up around it. Uh, we always talked about aviation growing up. It was like, just natural conversation. My dad would talk to us about how important airspeed is. He would talk to us about learning how to read a sectional. And we're talking at like a young age. <laughs> and we as kids, like, loved it. like some people go camping with their parents. Like we learned about every aspect of aviation from like, you know, from when we could talk um, up until we were getting our, our uh, aviation licenses. So uh, I think that had the biggest impact on us in terms of moving forward and pursuing aviation. So clearly, so clearly there is a legacy of, of aviators, of pilots in your family. Were you thinking about that legacy when you joined the military in 2001? You know, I don't think I thought of it as a legacy. I thought how it, amazing it was that I got to experience something that people had previous like through generations of my family had got to experience I know uh, I got to experience it completely different my dad was in the airborne infantry in the 82nd so like my experience in uh, aviation was much different than his infantry experience in the 60s so um, but also my mom I know my mom like I told you she 
was very interested in aviation. And she told me when I started to go down the path of after 9-11 and being like, I think I know now how I can apply my patriotism, my love of country and a, and love of aviation and and put it all together and become a helicopter pilot. Uh, and so when I started pursuing that, my mom, I remember her saying just how amazing she thought it was that her three daughters had the opportunity to pursue this because she didn't have that opportunity when she was interested in aviation. And she just thought it was uh remarkable and very cool that we were getting to do this. And so I remember that and I sort of never took that opportunity for granted. Um, and I, I appreciated that I was where I was in life where I was able to become a helicopter pilot is it was still fairly new. Yeah. So was it nine 11 that was the catalyst for you to join? It, it was, I had loved the military because growing up, like I said, with my dad's stories of serving in the army and then uh aviation i never knew for i the military was something that sounded cool and would be amazing if i ever pulled the trigger and decided to go for but it was 9 11 that was like all right i want to serve my country i don't want to wait you know three i was in the i was in college when it happened and i was like i don't want to wait any longer i feel like it's crystal clear for me now i want to serve my country and i feel like the best way that i can do that is through my love of aviation and my experience with aviation and that's the proper path for me but you had to know you had to know amber that well first of all talk about nine let's talk about 9-11 for a second if you lived through that i feel like it affected you to the very core of of who you are as a person and the very you know, core you know i can even to this day i mean oh gosh like over 20 years ago i could tell you exactly where i was what i was doing what i had for dinner the night before and breakfast that morning what all of my roommates in college were doing and i i remember everything every second of that day and i think it's because 9 11 sort of engages engaged you all of your senses but also on a very deep-seated emotional level and Amber, you had to know that when you when you volunteer to serve this country after 9-11 and you were going into you wanted to be an aviator. So you wanted to I guess you wanted to join the army and, and that meant that you were probably going to fly rotary wing helic helicopters. You had to know that you were going to be going to combat in some way, shape or form. Right. I did. And I think it was 9-11 for me was the first time that I realized um that the freedoms that we love and enjoy every single day are trying to be taken from us. You know, those freedoms um, are a threat to a lot of groups and adversaries around the world. And so in my very early adult age, it was the first time that I had that aha moment of like, this can be taken away. This isn't something we should be taken for granted as, as we saw with what happened for 9-11. And I wanted to give back to the country that had given me all of that. And I knew that becoming a helicopter pilot in the army, I would likely, you know, head to war sooner or later. And I did, uh, I went to, I, I ended up actually going to boot camp 2003 and then straight from there into flight school at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And then uh, I got Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the 101st Airborne Division for 
my first duty station and I was deploying within the year my, of me being there to Iraq. What's remarkable about that is that if you think back at that time, so you and I are essentially the same age, had such a similar experience and, and reason for why we joined the military back then. Did you did you have any conversation with your parents after 9-11 when you made that decision? So I think I have an extremely rare um like sort of experience with my parents with joining the military because I know so many people that I've talked to had the exact opposite of what I did. My parents were so unbelievably supportive. My dad from serving himself understood and knew exactly what the military did for an individual and how much it helped you grow and grow up and become an adult and sort of the lessons that you learn while you're in the military and about other people and the camaraderie and and what it actually means to serve, to serve something greater than yourself and be a part of that brotherhood and that sisterhood. Um, so they knew, my parents knew, and they were very supportive. I think the whole war aspect of it was nerve wracking to them because that was new. And obviously a child, like I, now that I'm a parent myself, like I can't even imagine what that is like, but uh in terms of military service and wanting to go fly in the military and serve my country i could not have had a better support structure for them being proud and um like happy that i was choosing that path they had to be superheroes because you know you said you're you're you're, you're a you're a, a mother now and i'm a father and yeah, I can't imagine having those conversations with my children, knowing that they're going to be going into the fight, you know, wanting to volunteer for for the military in a time of war. But what what's kind of unbelievable about your circumstance and unique to you is that you weren't the only one. You you had two sisters that also joined the military and found themselves serving in a time of war. Am I right about this as well? You're right. I my older sister Kelly. She was a C-130 pilot for the California Air National Guard, multiple deployments. I actually got to spend some time with her in Afghanistan. Um, that's which was that's crazy. Actually, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's it crazy. That you, I she, mean, for your parents to have to bear that burden of three, first of all, women in, in the military <laughs> in a post 9-11 world in Iraq and Afghanistan, two wars raging, two wars raging at the same time. Do you ever ask yourself? And they yourself, had two they daughters. Ever... Yeah, so in crazy. 2008, they had twice two daughters in the same combat zone. So I got to see Kelly in 2008. Uh, I was in Afghanistan. I was in uh, RC East in Jalalabad. Um, and then, and she was based out of Bagram and she got to fly into uh, Jalalabad and we got to see each other there. And then I got to see her up in Bagram a couple of times. And then at the end of my deployment, the end of 2008, my sister Lacey, we did the Riptoa with her unit. And so she, you know, her unit was replacing ours. And so we had about like a 10 day overlap, I want to say. And it was crazy. Like I remember that that was really hard for me because when Kelly left, um, she said goodbye to me, so to speak. Like I was still in country and she was leaving. And when Lacey was there, she was a helicopter. She was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in the 101st as well. And obviously, I could relate more to her mission because I was a helicopter pilot as well. 
And I sort of knew what the year had been like for me and some of the danger that exists as a helicopter pilot in Afghanistan. And so I was like, it was very hard for me to say goodbye to her, knowing that I was leaving her there for an entire year um, and what she could potentially face. Um, So it was amazing to see both of them in country, but it was also like, it was crazy to leave my sister there. How did you do it? When I came home. How did you say goodbye to her? It was really rough. She came she she came to like the holding area for us to get um onto the plane like our final departure before they lock you down she like came to me there and um it was you know i tried to give her the big sister pep talk about like you get in this situation like do this do this do this um and yeah it's just like how do you put it into words to like leave a family member behind in a combat zone that is like Um, For me, Afghanistan was a much harder deployment than Iraq was. And I knew that that she was going into that and she was in RC East as well. Um, So it was tough. It was it was tough. Yeah, uh, I was in RC East. I know know what it's like. Yeah, well, listen, I know what it's like. And you're leaving a family member there. You know how dangerous it is. And. It sounded like you said she made it back. She did. I was grateful, but I know it was a rough deployment as it was for most people during that time frame. Um, You know, it's, it's combat. It sucks. You see some things that it's war, war is, war is hell. And um, so, yeah, it was a rough deployment um, for everybody. And, uh, but like I said, like so grateful she came back, um, safe and sound. And, um, I'm really proud of her. Do you ever talk about your experiences in Afghanistan or in combat together? So when she came home from Afghanistan, uh, we kind of definitely had that connection. Uh, and, I know there were some very, um, she did some of her mission was like a medevac pilot as well. Uh, and so it's, it's different, um, than what we did as Kiowa pilots. Um, so we got to talk through all of that and I do think it was helpful to, to have sort of relatable experiences, um, where usually the people that you talk about are people who have, you know, in your unit who have been there, done that, shared experiences, and you guys are able to sort of like laugh, cry, like talk about all the BS and, and tell the war stories together. But it was, it was nice to be able to, to be able to do that with my sister. Uh, and I think it was helpful for both of us. Do you think the war, oh, well, I know the answer to this question already, because it's inevitable. If you experience war, doesn't matter if you're flying hundreds of feet above it, or your boots on the ground, it does change you in some deeper and profound ways. Has Have you and your sister recognized any of those changes in yourselves? Well, I'm not sure about my sister. For me, you know, when I first came back, I was like, oh, I'm fine, whatever. Uh, like, didn't give much thought to it. It wasn't until I transferred out of the military where I was like, um, you operate at such a high stress level as a Kiowa pilot. 
when you, and this is just like takeaway combat, takeaway combat, you're flying a small squirrely aircraft with a 50 cal machine gun, a rocket pod, seven high explosive rockets. You can carry Hellfire missiles. You've got a thermal imaging um, site system and you have five radios to talk on, listen to all at the same with all different information, everybody talking into your ear. Um, you've got your weapon systems, you've got your nav system. You have to fly a helicopter, make sure that uh, you and your co-pilot are on top of that. And then you have the mission, you have the ground force, the friendly situation, you have and this is going back to combat. Now you have the enemy situation. Um, sometimes people are shooting at you. You're getting target grids, target coordinates um, to take out an enemy target, bringing everything up. You have all sorts of aerial hazards like mountains, birds, cell phone towers, wires, um, very steep valleys and power limitations within the aircraft and, and how much power you have when you're doing these like deep dive attacks um, with a 50 cal or rockets. Um, and so it's a lot at one time. Like you're, if you're a Kiowa pilot, you are likely an adrenaline junkie because that's <laughs> what's going on the entire time you're in the air and you get these troops in contact calls. And then it's like, it's like a light switch. Like it's on, it's like go time. Let's go. Like you could be like sitting there fat, dumb and happy flying along, looking for the bad guy in like the mountains of Afghanistan. And then you get that call that there's friendly forces on the ground that are overrun, getting attacked by the enemy, um, got hit by an IED, whatever. Um, and it's like, as Kiowa pilots, we prided ourselves in being able to have a call site, a grid and a frequency. And that's all we needed to go destroy the enemy and to protect those guys on the ground that, that were in the thick of the fight that was our purpose. That was our mission was to protect those guys, make sure they came home to their families and uh, try to make their day a little bit easier because they didn't get to go back to the fob that I lived on. They lived out in the cops. They lived out in the um, outposts um, with horrible food, um, you know, not sleeping conditions. The enemy was always on them. And so we prided ourselves in being able to respond with as little information as possible. And yes, we didn't fly as fast as an Apache, um, but we dropped everything to get there and um, help them out in any way that we could. And that's what we lived for. And that's what we prided ourselves on um, in combat was being there for them when it mattered the most. And so the adrenaline was always there. And when you're deployed in combat, you live that for a year at a time. And I remember speaking to a senior officer when I got back from Iraq and he said for, through some research, he was a 160th guy. He said that through their research, they had realized for every year you do at combat, it takes twice that to sort of come down from that. And then you compound it because, you know, we're doing these back to back to back deployments um, for years at a time. Um, my deployments were both one year. The army had shifted to 15 months after I was done deploying. But um, so it was, it was a lot. And I, by the time I got out, I had li been living this like adrenaline stress filled lifestyle as most people experience in combat and uh, had lost friends. And it takes a while to come down from that, I would say. Like, it takes years to come down from that. It's not something that you go talk to somebody about 
you know, for six weeks and then you, you feel better. It's like, it takes time to sort of reset, um, your lifestyle. At least that's the way it is for me. And when I say lifestyle, I mean, sort of like your mindset and how you operate without being 300 miles an hour every, every day. So that was a super long answer, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad to have heard it because I was one of those guys on the ground, um, in the infantry in Afghanistan, getting shot up every single day saved. I can't even tell you how many times by helicopter pilots, just like you. And Okay, so you want to do something, do an exercise with me real quick. Go with go with the flow on this, Amber. I, I, I want people to see, I want to set a scenario and I want people, I want you to put people in your headspace. So like say you're in regional command east, RC East in Afghanistan, my platoon, or there's a platoon out on the border that's in contact, that's pinned down and you get that troops in contact report and you're in your tactical operation center or in your bed, your birds are on QRF. Take us through from the moment that you get that call, because you said it's like a light switch. Take us through that moment when you get that call to every step of the way to your bird. And I, I want people to see the level of proficiency. And you talked about it a little bit already, but the level of proficiency and how you have it down to a battle drill when you handle those types of situations. So immediately you get the call. Usually for us, we were always in the air because you always like we did 24 hour coverage. So there was always a team in the air and that's the team they called first unless they were just way far away. So say we were the team that was in the air, the pilot immediately pushes forward on the cyclic and pulls up on the collective, which means max power, max airspeed, and you just head in the direction. All you know is they may say, hey, Korangal River Valley, there's a troops in contact, you know, two KIA, six wounded, medevacs called, still active tick, um, grid coming. So we know just from being in the, um, being in that AO where that vicinity is. So we just immediately start flying as fast as we possibly can to um, that area. And we and get you don't, And by the way, you route. don't know, you have no idea what you're flying into. You just get a baseline report, the who, what, where, when, and why go. Yep. Yep. If that sometimes we don't even have that, we get that when we're like super close. Sometimes you get there and you don't have much information, which makes it very difficult. Or you have, you know, guys on the ground who their their people laying next to them are shot and they're trying to keep people alive. They're trying to talk to Ariel. They're trying to talk to the weapon, the scout weapons team, which is us and get them the proper get grid. So we can then if it's at night, like lays the targets, blow them up and then, um, Sometimes we have to observe for artillery. If they call in an artillery mission, um, we'll stand to the side. So you have artillery flying through the air and we're flying there as well. You have the medevac coming in um, and it is like a nonstop um, activity and you just do the best you can with the information that you have. Um, and then once you start putting like rounds down on targets, um, sometimes things calm down, sometimes they don't. Um, and so it just kind of depends what, uh, the enemy in Afghanistan, 
was very willing to fight, even sometimes when helicopters were on station. And so it was like, that's why I say like in Iraq, it was my experiences were more like, okay, once you laid down fire, it was like, okay, it might get kind of quiet. But um, in Afghanistan, some like they were ready to fight and keep going. And it was it was much harder terrain in Afghanistan, they hid in the mountains, there was like, boulder sized rocks that were the side of cars and they learned they started to learn our TTPs, our tactics, techniques and procedures for us as aerial platforms and they knew that they could, you know, come out when we were on our outbound racetrack pattern um, after shooting um, and then jump back behind the rocks again, which were which were great, um, you know, like protectors for them. And so it was uh, we did what we could with the information and terrain availability that we had. I I remember I used to come back from moments like that, you know, haven't been been bailed out by, you know, helicopter air assets, come back from a troops in contact and like, you know, your adrenaline flows. It's it's crazy how your adrenaline flows in moments like that. And I'm sure it was like that for you and the birds racing to troops in contact trying to save the day. You get back from those missions. How did you mentally reset? Because I feel like there were times I'd come back from missions and I'd, you know, you go through your priorities of work and make sure your trucks are refilled with fuel and ammunition and your weapons are clean. And then, you know, your men eat. What was that like for you? How did you mentally reset? Because you go, like you're flying. I mean, what's the airspeed uh, of a Kiowa warrior helicopter pilot? And you're talking about the chaos over top of troops in contact. You don't want to shoot friendly troops. You've got artillery sometimes coming in. You've got mortars coming in. You don't want to get hit with a mortar. You don't want to get hit with artillery. And then sometimes you have close air support, which are A-10s and in some of the worst cases, like a strategic Lancer. And you don't want to be caught in the middle of any of that. So, God forbid. So somehow by the grace of God, you survive all that. You find yourself back on the base. How do you mentally decompress from that? So for me, I, I really didn't decompress during that year that I was there. Uh, I felt like I almost couldn't because you go out the next day and you do the exact same thing. And so you kind of have to keep your head in the game. And I think that's why it's so taxing and so stressful, like compounded stress is because you don't ever get that let down while you're in it because you need to keep that stress level so high in order for you to keep your head in the game, to be able to be completely efficient and effective at your mission and flying the helicopter. And you can't let emotions and um what if scenarios like enter your mind um those definitely came after when you come home from deployments like back to america yeah then it's like flooded with like how the hell did i survive that specific situation <laughs> like i should not i should not have survived it like by the grace of god i am here today but there are there are instances like like too many to count where i'm like how did I survive that? And so, but you can't think of that either in the moment when you come back from the mission. Um, it's it's just, at least that's how I handled it. I didn't 
let my mind go to that place until I came back from the deployment. Like in the moment in, in Afghanistan or in Iraq, it was a fate I had accepted for anything that was going to happen in country. It was a fate that I accepted for being there as part of my job and part of my mission. And I just didn't let myself think about it or dwell on it. And it was like, yep, going to wake up tomorrow and do the exact same thing. Um, to you talk about a fate you help accepted? out guys just like you. Did do you talk about a fate you accepted? Did you accept at a certain level that that you that you could very well die and you just let go? You don't care. And obviously, you want to make it home alive. Yeah, I think that you know that because I had so many. Um, I had, I had so many people in my troop, like small troop that I know throughout my years had gotten killed in helicopter crashes, in combat. Like it was like a fact of life. And it was like, I remember when my friend, Mike Slavonic, he's a CW4, he was um, killed in Afghanistan. He was shot in his thigh and, and bled out um, and was killed on actually 9-11, 2008. And I remember I was, um, he was in my troop. He was my instructor pilot from the very first, I deployed with him twice, flown with him, taught me so much about flying. And I remember because it had happened so many times, you know the look on a person's face when they walk into a room to tell you. And I remember when my, my friend and, and colleague and pilot came to tell me, I, I looked on her face and I said, who is it? She didn't say anything. Um, I just knew that someone had died. I didn't know who. And, uh, I was just like, who is it? Um, and then I found out it was Mike, but. How did you handle that? That was rough for me. Um, that it. So, you, so we just talked about, we just talked about how you handle um, knowing you could die in combat. And I think that was kind of the exception when I said I didn't think about it in theater. Um, but when Mike got killed, it brought me back to reality um, and brought me back how like every day you make it home from a mission is a gift and like um, how fragile life is and just how unfair it was that he didn't make it home you know, wife, kids, great American, loved this country, loved serving and um, flying. And so it was, it was hard, even after like all the people who um, I also knew had been killed. It was, um, it was, it's, it never gets any easier, I would say. How has, how, how have these experiences, Amber, shaped your perspective on how you live your life today? Everything. All of those experiences have formed who I have, who I am today. And it's completely changed my perspective of war, of national security, of foreign policy, of um, at a, at a more um, national um, political level. Um, has completely, and also I think from my time serving in the Pentagon um, and seeing it more um, from an executive Pentagon level 
and then contrast to me as more of an operations tactical level um, as my time as a Kiowa pilot. Uh, and so that's completely um, changed my perspective on life and how I live my life, um, my priorities of what I think is important. Um, and I'm so incredibly grateful for my service. I, it gave me so much. It was a, it was hard. I almost did it for, you know, over seven and a half years of my life. Um, but it gave me so much in terms of life lessons and learning who I was and what I was capable of and how I would handle situations. And, um, so everything it's who I am today is because of my experiences in the military. Do you think when you talk about how your service has shaped your perspective on geopolitics in war, um, you've always been someone you fought for this country in Afghanistan, Iraq, on multiple battlefields. You said you did seven plus years. It's so important, Amber, for people like you to come back and stay involved in the dialogue and direction of this country. The the role of, you know, the the elder warrior in society's past, and that yes, we send our men and women to fight for our country. They experience harrowing and sometimes horrifying things in service to the country. And instead of coming home and detaching, we need those people to come back and stay involved to help educate our policymakers on what war is like. And you've done that. Where of all the horrible things that you've experienced, I'm sure your service is braided with terrible experiences and the best experiences in life. But where has that motivation come from? inside of you to stay in the fight for this country? I will tell you that I think top level leadership are in the military are a big part of today's problem with the military. And unfortunately, their voice in society is what matters. Uh, so the reason I choose to stay involved and be very vocal on some very unpo like unpopular issues um, that a lot of people don't agree with me on <laughs> is because I think that it's important to have voices out there that don't have stars on their shoulders. Um, people who have fought in these wars that some of their decisions place people in these positions. Um, those people who have been there at that lower operational level, tactical level, and have those experiences and understand that what briefs well on a fancy little PowerPoint presentation in a skiff in the Pentagon or at the White House doesn't always equate to what's needed on the battlefield to uh, achieve mission success. Um, and so I don't feel that the, the, the tactical level soldier is always best represented because in today's military, once you get that star on your shoulder, a lot of people aren't going to like that I have to say this, but they are politicians. You are then a politician that is serving a higher um, political 
being. It's no longer about the guys on the ground. And I take issue with that. It's, um, it's not okay. It's destroying our military. And we see it in the recruitment numbers that are coming out. It's only going to get worse. And, uh, so I want to make sure that people know the truth and that, um, military leadership is a significant, like also, you know, executive and congressional legislative leadership is as well. Um, they hold some of the blame with the budget and all of that, but it's, uh, they are a big part of the problem. And I think for so long in our country, no one felt like they could speak out about generals. It was like, oh, you're a general, you're untouchable. And that should be the exact opposite. You want the responsibilities um, that come with being a general, then guess what? You deserve um, to be critiqued for the decisions that you make. Um, But sadly, there is no accountability for about above the lieutenant colonel rank. It's like once you make it past lieutenant colonel, except very few instances in the Navy, for some reason in the Navy, they still choose to hold some of their uh, vessel commanders responsible for um, things that happen with them. But across the military, as a generalization, senior military leaders are no longer held uh, held accountable. And that is a significant, um, significant problem for the future of our nation and our national security and an effective military. Amber, I, I totally agree. Uh, can I give you my perspective on this? Um, Absolutely. People like, you know, uh, so I, I've served just over six years, almost seven years in the military. I went into the military after 9-11, just like you saying, I wanted to make it a career. And then I went to airborne school, went to ranger school, went to every cool, sexy school that the military had to offer. And I found myself boots on the ground in eastern Afghanistan in direct combat with an enemy for 16 straight months. And first firefight, I came back. It was exhilarating. And then the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, I was like, okay, this sucks. <laughs> I can't do this. I can't do this for a career. <laughs> and and I came home. I came home. I became, um, you know, I, I, I remember like my, I came home and my unit like nine months later was supposed to go back to Afghanistan. And I went into my commander's office and I said, you know, sir, I can't do this. I can't, I can't lead troops effectively anymore because I'm, I'm home now. I'm emotionally compromised. You talked about that emotional state that you have to get in and combat to be able mm-hmm. to survive and thrive and lead. I was out of it, Amber. I was out of it. And I told, I, I, I rather than put my soldiers at risk and say like, and, and pretend like there wasn't an issue. I went and told my commander, I can't do it anymore. And now I was in the process of, of being medically retired, you know, having been wounded in combat and, and all that. But, but during that time of my medical retirement, I did a lot of watching other leaders, officers in the military. And what I saw is that there are officers that play the game and officers who don't. And it's typically the officers who don't see heavy combat that end up staying in because they don't have the same sort of experiences that I had on the battlefield. And they think, oh, this isn't that bad. Well, I'll maybe stay on to be a captain, a major, lieutenant colonel. Um, And what you end up have happening is, is you have in units all across the military, people who didn't see the heaviest combat or didn't didn't play at the highest operational tempo 
end up climbing the ladder. And what I saw among that demographic were men and women who are willing to play the game, leaders who were only concerned with their bow and rarely their wake. And most of those people never saw sustained heavy combat or high operational tempo like you. And what you end up have happening is you have a bunch of people with stars on their shoulders who have never really seen the horrors of war up close and personal for a sustained amount of time. And I liken it to almost being, you know, calling yourself an artist, but having never painted the painting in your life. Yet these are the people that are making life and death decisions at the strategic level for our country and our men and women in uniform. And we're talking when we talk about making strategic decisions, we're talking about decisions that send our people to war, which I believe America's sons and daughters are our most precious natural resource. It's a leader's job. And I I, I think that you'll probably agree with me. It's we need to do everything that we can to protect America's sons and daughters and shield them from sending them into frivolous wars. And and I think that's sort of why we're in the, why the military is today where it is. I, that's such a fantastic point. Um, like with your experiences transitioning out of the military and, and what you saw, I, I do think that when you said that our men and women who are serving our, you know, our, our nation's most valuable assets, they 100% are, and there is nothing that makes me more furious than an American saying, when you point out the flaws of the Pentagon and you point out the flaws of the military and toxic leadership that exists and, you know, the, the almost cultural stance at the top, which is to appease politicians in Washington, instead of setting up the military to be the, the best um, down at the tactical level. Um, Absolutely, is, right. is when people say, "Oh, well, you, well, you signed up to serve the the military." Um, people, vol- it's a all volunteer force, so they just have to deal with it. They, they, uh, you know, they knew what they were signing up for, and that is a bunch of crap. People signed up to serve our country because they believe in the freedoms and principles that our nation was founding on, founded on, and they believe that it is worth protecting. They don't sign up to join the military to have the poorest leaders that exist um, and are not putting their well-being um, in line the way that it should be. Um, you're not, you should not be treated as cannon fodder because you signed up to serve our military. And that has a lot to do um, with leadership and what they think that they can get away with and their priorities. And so, yes, signing up for war, you know that you could potentially have to go to war give your life. And that's what people know going into it. But it doesn't mean that they should be put in um, positions that they had that are wrong for the nation, um, that are not smart uh, foreign policy or national security decisions. And sadly, that's what we see today. That's exactly what we saw with Afghanistan, where there was not a single general from about summer of 2011 after Osama bin Laden was killed. Um, uh, up until the withdrawal that could not articulate a mission or an end state for Afghanistan. So they knew, they knew, and they continued to send people into harm's way for a fight that they couldn't articulate. I mean, I totally totally agree. Listen, I totally agree with you. And I was going to ask you about the fall of Afghanistan and, and how that 
affected you, um, you know, emotionally, mentally, physically. I, I, I remember when I saw those images of what it looked like Saigon 2.0 and and the Chinook helicopters on top of the embassies in Afghanistan and the, and just the sheer just how fast Afghanistan collapsed in on itself like a dying star and our politicians who sent us into that war for 20 plus years like as you mentioned no mission no end state and you had these generals who every year they issue their report on Afghanistan in January and every year they say the mission is on track the Afghan national army is on track the Afghan national police are on track the Afghan border police are good to go but you and I, having been in that country, we knew that that wasn't true, yet they issued those reports anyway. And in the lead up to the fall of Afghanistan, you could see the writing on the wall. You could see that our political leaders, our military leaders, had they hadn't given one thought to what a drawdown in peaceful end state or peaceful withdrawal from Afghanistan looked like. And it ended up squandering what I believe. I mean, obviously, like having been there, I would go back and serve there again. We did lots of great things there. We built wells uh, and villages and did lots of humanitarian assistance and taught kids to read and, you know, enabled young little girls to go get an education. I'm proud of my service in Afghanistan. I'm sure that you are too, but it doesn't mean that I'm not pissed off that they squandered every bit of that because you're seeing Afghanistan it's like the funniest thing in the world, Amber, where you had the Biden administration and Jen Psaki, who is then the White House press secretary, saying that the Taliban were going to now now embrace women's rights and allow them to go to school. <laughs> like, was there any part of you that believed that at all? And give me a sense, give us a sense of how you processed the fall of Afghanistan and what it was like for you. All politics is today is PR campaign after PR campaign after <laughs> PR campaign. And Afghanistan was no different. Like you said, they were trying to sell to the public that the Taliban was going to be great for Afghanistan and they were going to be okay with women's rights and girls going to school. And anyone with half of a brain saw right through that, especially veterans who had served there. Um, and that's and that's why I think it was so difficult the withdrawal was so difficult difficult for so many Afghanistan veterans. For me, the writing was on the wall. I understood from a political stance that the war in Afghanistan was never going to change. It was going to be the same bureaucracy, the same hearings uh, at Congress, the same throw the money at the problem, no results, no accountability, no ability to track the money that we are sending, the $50 billion a year that we're sending over there. Uh, and so year after year after year, it was very clear to me that there was no coherent strategy, if there was one at all, uh, towards any sort of a in-state that um, would be beneficial. So um, it was, we can continue to spend money. We can continue to see our American soldiers die in Afghanistan, um, or we can start the process of ending this war. Um, so I was for the end of the war. What I was not for was the withdrawal, the way that it happened. It could not have been more like the world saw. It could not have been more of a disaster, more chaotic, more unplanned. Um, and it really showed a lot of our 
vulnerabilities, I think, from a national security um, perspective um, with how it unfolded, both like in our intelligence and, you know, the Taliban has no capabilities to take Kabul. The the Afghan army um, is able to hold Kabul. You know, all of that information that continued to come out um, from the IC and was, it wasn't just false. Like we didn't look back and be like, oh yeah, they were a little off on that one. Um, it, it fell in the, it fell in days. Um, and so it, it was just, um, I think an example of the IC doing their analysis, um, politicized analysis of like wanting a specific outcome. And then that's what gets briefed instead of the reality on the ground. Um, and so it was very difficult for me to watch, um, actually a whole lot more difficult than I thought it would be. It really affected me, um, seeing, um, you know, seeing the helicopters evacuate American civilians off of the embassies, seeing what happened at the airfield at KIA, um, seeing Amer- American veterans springing into actions, like everybody on their phones 24-7 to try to help the interpreters interpreters and the other Afghans who had helped Americans on the ground. Um, and it was such a helpless feeling because you're sitting over here in America, you're like trying to, you know, communicate the best you can, figure out a way, figure out which gates open right now versus, um, you know, where the Taliban is like beating people to death and all of that. So it was a lot and it was really a surreal time. Um, but what was more surreal was how quick it was out of the news cycle once it was over. Oh my gosh. Amber, you're so right. Oh my God. So much there. I, I uh, remember experiencing that. I felt at a very similar experience. Uh, and I, I remember like thinking, my God, I want to go back, get me over there. And at the time I was, I was running for Senate at the height of my Senate campaign and I was this close to suspending my campaign and hopping on like some civilian wow. C-130 yeah. back to, and I, did you feel the same way? I know that you did. I, I did. I absolutely did. And I did the best <laughs> I, I can. I, I, I was working with some special operations veterans um, that were doing some sort of fantastic work behind the scenes in terms of getting things done. And I'm grateful for um, the work that I was able to do with them. Of course, you always wish that you could do more, um, which sort of leads to that like helpless feeling. Um, but it was like time was so short. And then the State Department, you know, shut everybody down, like ah, shut it at, at one point. It was like, nope, shut down. And there was no way in or out. And then it was like, all right, let's move to ground transportation. And, and that became its own issues for the obvious reasons with the Taliban and checkpoints and, um, it was just, it was um, unreal that the U.S. government essentially did that to itself. And where's the accountability, Sean? None. Are we going to have that conversation? Like, I know Congress just launched their investigation, but which is great, which is great. We're going to spend taxpayer dollars on like millions of taxpayer dollars on an investigation. But are we going to say, I only want an investigation if there's going to be some accountability because what are they going to do with this investigation? What? That's a fair point, Amber. And I really, like, let me just, let me just ask you this. How much investigation do we really need to do? Like exactly. we all saw what an 
a, a, a horrific train wreck the withdrawal of Afghanistan was. Like, the, yet you're absolutely right. From Millie on down, there hasn't been one single person, not one politician, not not one single general, not one single military leader who's been held accountable for that debacle. And at some level, I think there has to be accountability. There has to be accountability. And if generals and civilian leaders, civilian sec defs, there needs to be public acknowledgement of their failures and that their responsibility contributed to this. And it has to be not political. It has to be completely um, just factual. These decisions, these leadership decisions that were made by these individuals, um, you know, failed the U.S. military and those were serving in the people of Afghanistan. Um, it needs to be that blunt. If they can't, you know, like criminally, financially hold them accountable, then there needs to, they need to publicly be said what the decisions that these people made um, led and the consequences of their actions. Um, but yeah, the people who are still serving, it is like, they need to be removed from leadership leadership positions. But the thing was, is that in the military, at the Pentagon, and this isn't just the military, this is a government problem. You fail up. When you go on with the failed decisions and you fall in line, guess what? You keep your mouth shut, you get promoted, you move up. You speak out, you use common sense, you think critically, guess what? You are now a threat and you are gonna be held accountable for telling the truth. I mean, we live in a society with a two-tiered justice system. And, you know, if you look at what's going on with Joe Biden and the scandal that he's embroiled in with these classified documents, like in in the carelessness with which he handled them, like had and then you look at the way the general these generals handled Afghanistan and the carelessness with which they handled the whole of Afghanistan. No like no accountability for Afghanistan. Is there going to be accountability for for Joe Biden, who, who by the way, is the commander in chief of the United States military? Um, we wouldn't get that level of grace if if you and you or I as as tactical leaders made the same mistakes that they did, we would be fired and put out of the military in a second. Can you even imagine First of all, no, I don't think Joe Biden's going to be held accountable. I don't, not, <laughs> I don't not so for a either. second. I wasn't even surprised. I wasn't even surprised <laughs> yeah. when I heard about this, about the classified documents. I just was like, sounds about right. Sounds uh, about right. So the, um, yeah, imagine a captain or maybe like an E5, you know, all the clearances, goes in a skiff, is working on something, just takes this many documents, stuffs them in his backpack and walks out. What would happen to that guy? Put out of the he military would go and to be prison. in jail. Yeah, absolutely right. Yes. Absolutely and, right. And there'd and be so no discussion like, about it. Yeah, no discussion. Um, they would be like committing treason, a threat to the United States government. Um, so it's just like you said, the two-tier justice system um, the the political elites when you're on the right wrong the right side how you get treated um, and how everybody looks the other way for you versus everybody else um, it's really un-American and I don't know how long 
you carry on like that before um, people wake up to the reality and get very angry about that, about one standard being held to the political elite and those on the right side and then those everybody else. Well, you know, and now, Amber, you have two kids of your own. How how old are you? You got a boy and a girl. How old are they? They do. Four and two. Four and two. Yeah. So I, I, I tried to do a little bit of math before the pro try to figure out how old your kids were. So you're still in the thick of it with your little ones, like where Very they're probably so. w- waking up in the middle of the night. And <laughs> and so you've made the tr- transition from, you know, running combat missions in Afghanistan and a Kiowa warrior helicopter flying into troops in contact to probably watching Doc McStuffins and knowing all the lyrics on <laughs> all of those Disney, those Dis- those Bluey, Disney shows, Peppa which, Pig, which is, yeah, yeah which Peppa Pig, which is a journey in and of itself, an adventurous one at that. But what do you would you want your children joining the military? Because your oldest is four. So in in 14 years that will go by like that in 14 years. So we talked about your parents and how they were supportive of you joining the military during a time of war and how they clearly how I don't know how either. I mean, I'm 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 a parent with young children as well. I have no idea how I would react to a situation like that with where the military is today. Where are you on that? The answer is a hard no. And that absolutely breaks my heart to say that. But the military that I served in, I don't even recognize anymore. It doesn't exist. Um, And that's hard because I devoted a significant chunk of my life to it. And it did do so much for me. It was extremely hard and challenging, and it forced myself, um, you know, to to the to the red line where you learn what you're capable of and your limits, and um, it it learn it brings out the best part of you. And so I'm so grateful for my service, and I'm sad that that type of a military with the military leadership that exists today isn't there anymore. And that the positive things that I said that the military does for you about character building and, you know, working with the most diverse group of people that is out there and having one solid mission and your purpose. um, I don't believe that that military um, and those experiences are there anymore. I don't feel like it's um, military leadership would have the best interest of my children serving. It took me You know, when I first started having these thoughts about, you know, this is real now, like my parents are growing up in a a household where their father is still serving um, and has had an incredible military career. And then, you know, I obviously served combat veteran myself. So, of course, they're going to hear about it and be so interested in it. Um, But that's going to be a really hard conversation. And like, I wish, I hope the military gets back on track. It's why I'm so vocal and passionate about this is the military needs to turn itself around um, and get back to a mission focused organization rather than a Washington DC political agenda organization. Um, And, and really a leadership institution. The United States used to be the best like leadership um, government agency institution out there. Um, West Point used to be the number one leadership school in the world. Now they're teaching CRT. They used to teach critical thinking. Um, and now they're focused on other things. So it's just like the military has lost its way. Um, 
and it needs to get back on track. If they want to fix this recruiting and retention and morale um, crisis that the military is in right now, um, I will tell you, I'm, uh, I have been speaking with a lot of active duty military and uh, I have been asking them the same question. Not one person has said they would recommend military service to their children. That is terrifying because when I served at the Pentagon, I worked on an initiative called Know Your Military, which connects um, the American public that doesn't have much of a connection to those who serve and, and then connects them to the military as part of bridging the civilian military divide. And through our research, we found that the military had really turned into a family business. Um, pe people who have parents who serve are so much more likely to serve than those without military parents or without that direct connection to the military. And now this trend in people who are serving are not recommending to their children that they serve in the military is like, we think recruitment is bad this current generation. What's it going to look like in the next generation? And people need to wake up to the national security threat that that is when our, our like, like we have an all volunteer service right now. Is it always going to be like that? How do we get things back on the right track? Um, we do. We start by fixing the general problem. Um, and the, the thing is, is that it's not an easy fix. Uh, it's going to have to be Congress and the executive branch working together. And what I just said doesn't actually exist in real life. So I don't think there's going to be much change. It would require both of them um, focusing on leadership at the Pentagon and um, understanding that that sort of legacy um, generals are the problem, are part of the problem. Um, and they've just become yes men. That's what's sad. The generals of World War II no longer exist. Those aren't the generals in the military today. Um, and so that's kind of step one, um, you know, root out the toxic leadership, um, the people who are, you know, pushing these woke agendas onto the military over, um, readiness over mission success. Um, and, and that's more on the political leadership side that we see with the sec def and his sort of, um, priorities for the U S military, uh, that, so, th so there's a lot to do. Um, but with the way the military is treating those who are currently serving, um, it's it's having a serious effect. We saw what the uh, COVID mandate did. Um, it really was damaging to a lot of people serving who were forced into a corner and completely told that their principles um, didn't matter. So they were told to um, basically, you know, the 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 um, the army. Um, values that you learn from day one, they were essentially said to like, nope, get rid of those and and just do what we tell you to. Don't stand by your values anymore. Yeah, it's so it's in a world of hurt. It's terrifying. It sounds like it. I mean, it, the the research that you conducted at the Pentagon and the idea that the military is a family business, people who have parents who serve are more likely to serve themselves. What do you do when? Your parents are like, nah, ceasefire on that, kiddo. Like, it's not a good time to join. 
raises very serious questions of whether or not you can even have an all-volunteer force in five or ten years from now. And man, I I, I don't know, Amber, you're a warrior. I I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, how so? How how has being a? I want to talk about you now. How has being a a warrior and a helicopter pilot shaped who you've become as a mom? I guess it's made me more uh, critical and focused on their future and some of the things they're going to be up against in this world. Um, I know, like, I want. Um, I do get very concerned about the direction of this country and the divisiveness and um, how you're no longer to think critically or have a voice um, of your own without having to worry about going against the mainstream and the consequences that come with it. Um, But like I said, I grew up loving America, loving the freedoms um, that I got to enjoy every day growing up. And I want to ensure that my children get to experience that level of freedom, that level of opportunity, um, and the joys that come with all of that. So it is very important to me um, that I continue to fight that fight in my own way um, by helping preserve the America that I know and love um, and that I fought to protect in two wars for. Um, And I can only hope that more Americans um, are waking up. I think if there is one silver lining to the disaster of the COVID-19 response is that I think it did wake up some sleeping Americans to big government power and control and utilizing fear as a way to get that power and control. And so I, I do think that I hope that many Americans woke up um, to some of the tyranny that we are now seeing um, on our own doorsteps, which is terrifying and it happened very quickly. Um, but I think it's Im- important to find your voice and speak out about it. I totally agree. Find your voice, speak out about it, take a stand, think critically, think for yourself. Amber, this country is is so lucky and blessed to have people like you in it. And thank you for, for coming on today. Thank you for your perspective and thank you for joining me on Battleground. Can I say one more thing? Of course you can. I just want to say, Sean, number one, I'm so excited for this podcast because you're like made for it. Um, And also, so back in the day, you were my biggest advocate for getting my book off the ground, for telling me that I had a story, for helping me find my voice um, and being such a big supporter of my book with everything that I needed. Um, And I just can't thank you enough for being such an awesome person, friend, American, you're the real deal, and um, America needs you. I know you're going to stay in the fight. Thanks, Amber. I really appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. You got it. Thanks for having me on, Sean. All right, everybody. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amber. If you did, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and, and subscribe to my YouTube channel for more exclusive content. We need your help.
This is a show for you. It cuts through all of the BS that is wholly dedicated to preserving the legacy of those who served and celebrating the greatest country on the face of the planet, the United States of America. Join us in that journey. We need you. If you like the podcast, send me an email, shoot me a message on social media. You know that I read them and that I try to respond to everything and leave a review because that helps us too. And as always, God bless you all and God bless this incredible country that we live in. Take care. Inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Thermador at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build.